Are we on track to meet our climate deadline? Climate One conversations explore the need to transform every system around us. Food, water, energy, transportation, politics, and even the cognitive system inside our heads. Moving all those systems away from fossil fuels is necessary to stabilize the climate that supports our lifestyles and our economy. I'm Greg Dalton. For years, scientists and politicians have been saying that the climate battle will be won or lost in the next decade. The IPCC has stated that to avoid climate catastrophe, global emissions must be halved by 2030 and at net zero by 2050. Politicians and the media have picked up the message. Some have made it a rallying cry, but are people listening? Mostly people don't read newspapers as much as they used to. Uh, they get most of their information online, and most of what they see online is that climate change is a hoax. So there is an information deficit. What is needed to get people to take notice of and take action on the climate deadline? The one thing I would say is that's incredibly powerful is the unexpected. Anything that breaks through the, the numbness, that's unexpected, surprising, shocking. On today's program, we talk about the logistical and emotional challenges of meeting that 2030 goal and whether it's even realistic. Joining me on the Climate One stage are Chris Field, faculty director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford and a co-chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. David Fenton, founder of Fenton Communications and a veteran of many campaigns for social change. And Renee Lertzman, a psychologist and strategist with a new TED Talk titled, How to Turn Climate Anxiety into Action. What are we really talking about when we set a climate deadline? Chris Field lays out the basic science. Probably the most important change in our understanding of the forcing and responses to climate change is the recognition that there's basically a forever CO2 budget and the forever CO2 budget to have a two-thirds probability of staying under 1.5 C is around 2,750 billion tons. Really big number. But we've already emitted over 2,200 billion tons and we're emitting about 40 billion a year. If you do the math, what that means is that if we want to have a two-thirds probability of stabilizing warming at less than 1.5 C, we've got order 10 years of emissions at current rates as the remaining lifetime forever budget. Now, you can say, well, what, we can just slow down and we can go way past 2030, but we're not slowing down. We've been speeding up in recent years. And this recognition that that's the budget, no matter what we do, has really changed the conversation. And it's what brings us here this afternoon. And it's mind-blowing to think that I keep coming back to this, that half of that forever budget has happened in the last, what, 30 years? Since Jim Hansen testified before Congress, since Al Gore's first film. So most of that's been burned in the last 30 years. So Tell us, Chris Field, there's a lot of debate between a 1.5 degrees warming world and a two degree world. You think that that distinction is too sharply chiseled. Why? There are a whole bunch of reasons that we need to stop climate change. Um, but there are a lot of reasons that it's hard. And a lot of the reasons it's hard is that fossil fuels have fueled the legitimate development aspirations of people around the world, especially people in poor countries where the alternatives for access to energy, for transportation aren't anywhere near as mature as they are here. And so I think we need to be open-minded about our need for energy as the source for development aspirations, for meeting development aspirations around the world. What, what I think we need to do about climate change is work as hard as possible to be on a trajectory of ambitious mitigation. If we do that, the IPCC has shown that it's technically feasible to stabilize warming at 1.5, but it's also shown that it's really hard. A world of ambitious mitigation might end us up at somewhere between 1.5 and 2, or it might end us up a little bit warmer than 2. But all those are worlds where the risks of really serious tipping points, the risks of catastrophic interactions among different kinds of impacts, 
and the risk of the kind of social collapse that makes it really hard to govern the not only the climate system but the global system are really manageable. It's important to distinguish this world of ambitious mitigation from the world of continued high emissions that we're on now. That's the important distinction. Whether it's 1.5, 1.7, or 2 is much less important. So some people get a little too hung up on, on the, the right side of the decimal point of, of the degree. David Finton, this deadline has made its way into the political campaign headlines. A lot of people say, we got 10 years. Do you worry about deadline panic? Well, panic shuts people down. Uh, but I don't think it's a binary choice between hope and panic. I think it's a question of how you combine the two in talking to people. Because we can't solve this. We know how to solve it. But if we don't solve it, we're in a lot of trouble. So I think you have to tell people both things. It's not enough to tell people that we can solve it because then there's no urgency. And it is an urgent situation. And on the other hand, if you only tell people it's catastrophic, a lot of people are going to go to the beach. So it's like most things, it's how you balance the messages. Can I just ask, Chris, where did the cut 50% in 10 years come from? Was that in the IPCC? There are lots of trajectories you can think about for getting from high emissions to zero emissions. One way to do it is take the amount we've got and, and slice a diagonal through it and flip the upper triangle down, that gets you to a 50% cut in, in, in 10 years. It's really, really hard to go from our current emissions, which has a CO2 equivalent of about 50 billion tons a year, to nothing in 20 years. And so to the extent that we use more negative emissions in the future, we can have more continuing emissions in the near term. But it's really wiggling the details. If we're going to cut to zero, we basically have to come really close to having emissions every 10 years. Right. Rene Lertzman, I'd like to hear your uh, thought on the, these targets. As a psychologist, someone thinks about how humans process these things. Mm-hmm. Your thought about these particular targets, which are, are prevalent now in our popular culture and media culture. What's, what's your take on these targets? Well, I'm primarily interested in how we process information that's charged and emotional. And hearing you speak about the data, it's incredibly triggering charged emotional content. So that's the lens that I'm bringing through this. So naturally, when we're confronted with information that's threatening, that's scary, that's overwhelming, we want to hold on to something tangible and we want to, you know, it's also a very powerful tool to mobilize and spark action. So a lot of companies, organizations use targets, cities, governments to say, this is what we're going to do. My concern. So it's a yes and, you know, how many goal, how many steps am I going to take today? Right. Right. Exactly. But, but it's a yes. And with regards to targets and climate change, because the risk is that, Um, we set ourselves up with an oversimplification for one um, of the, what really is involved to get to these targets. We leave ourselves vulnerable potentially to missing the messy, complicated, nuanced roadmap to get to the targets. Right. So I understand the need for a target to kind of spark that, like get you motivated kind of thing. But ultimately I don't see it as a really a viable, um, framework unless it comes with a deep, thoughtful roadmap that we are co-creating together. There's also a bit of fatigue. Uh, David Fenton, I'm pretty sure I heard Al Gore 15 years ago say we got 10 years and here we are. So... Well, I'm not responsible for what Al Gore <laughs> says or doesn't okay. say. Well, you did advise us, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> but, you know, we have to thank the vice president for sounding the alarm about this. Sure. He, he was right. You know, uh, I think there's a bigger problem uh, than this, which is most people still don't know a lot about this. Most people still don't think this is urgent. Only 30% of Americans think solving climate change is an urgent problem. Even here in California, where people know more about this than other places because of the fires, et cetera, only 50% of Californians think this will affect them in their lifetime. So... 
I think that we have not done a good enough job of raising public knowledge, understanding, and urgency on this issue. And I think that's the bigger problem. Oh, hey, can, can I, I say, say something? Well, again, through the lens of how we process charged, complicated content data, there's such a thing as willful ignorance. There's the, the fact that we often go into um, an inability cognitively to process information that we don't want, that's distressing, that challenges our worldview and identity. So when we hear data about people don't know or people don't aren't engaged, I always think of it in the context of what are people maybe distancing or avoiding or kind of in some form of soft or hard denial around as opposed to taking it at face value that people, I don't buy that people are as ignorant as we think they are. There's a willful ignorance because it's too overwhelming. It's too scary to contemplate. And for a lot of people I talk to, they don't even know how to go there. They need some some guidance along the way. And there's a, some people who don't like the, the solutions to climate change, therefore they're not going to acknowledge the problem. Chris Field. I just wanted to say one thing in defense of Al Gore. You know, it, 15 years ago, it made sense to say we have not yet seen impacts from climate change, but we will in a few years, and we have. Now we have definitely passed the threshold where year after year after see, year, we're seeing real impacts of climate change that are in some cases are really having devastating consequences. Big change. So as David says, the weather is teaching people uh, it's, it's, it's happening now. It's no longer something far off. Climate writer Abby Rabinowitz surveyed a bunch of writers who covered climate change and asked how the media could do a better job on the beat. Here are insights from her reporting and her experience. We're actually at a really exciting moment with climate coverage. I interviewed a number of editors and also writers for a piece I wrote for the Columbia Journalism Review. And one thing I heard a lot is that climate change should frame every beat, that it should be on every beat as long as it's applicable. It's environmental, it's business, it's social, it's the air we breathe, it's our personal health, it's our allergies, it's Lyme disease, it's all climate change. I don't think the science is actually that complicated or strange. It's a very intuitive concept. We're blanketing the earth with this gas that contains heat. I wonder how often people think about the science behind gravity. Does it need to be explained every single time we report a sports article? Well, the ball dropped because gravity was happening, and this is about the mass of a greater object and the mass of a smaller object and attraction. You don't need to do it every time. The truth is frightening and clear enough that we can be both accurate and urgent in our language as journalists. I think that we need to tell engaging, rich stories with protagonists. I think we need stories about people working to make a change in the face of extraordinary loss and grief that they're taking personally. Journalist Avi Rabinovitz, who also directs the writing program at NYU's Engineering School. Uh, David Fenton, a lot in there. Don't need to talk about the science. Don't need to talk about gravity. Personal human stories. Your, your response to what she said. True and not true. Um, stories are great. Uh, they're important. They inspire people. But uh, there's, there is an information deficit in this country. Uh, I'm advising a group right now that just did a survey of coastal property owners in a very vulnerable state who own middle-class homes on the coast. And um, we asked them if it was flooding more. They said yes. We asked them if they were concerned about the flooding. They said yes. We asked them what's causing the flooding. 80% said bad sewage systems and overdevelopment, only 20% could identify rising seas from climate change. And if you trace the actual data and information flow to people like that, mostly people don't read newspapers as much as they used to. Uh, they get most of their information online, and those people, most of what they see online is that climate change is a hoax. That's what most conservatives see. So there's, there's, there is an information deficit and I think also that if to arouse the public to mobilize for the transformation of the economy that we need and all of the infrastructure, people have to be able to explain to you why we have to do that. And they're not really at the point where enough people can do that yet. Though, uh, Chris Field, we heard there that science is not that complicated. The science is, is simple. And David also mentioned information deficit, which is the idea that people just had more information. One more book, one more podcast, one more this. They would somehow a flip would switch in their brain. and They get it. But that's flawed, isn't it? You know, I, uh, and I'm not David saying make, that. David, <laughs> makes a, David makes a compelling argument, though. And, and 
you know, he's the person who has done the surveys to ask whether people have heard the information. Uh, in my presentations, you know, I, I, I suspect all of you know about climate change and, and care about it enough to come. And I, I think that we can potentially fool ourselves into feeling that the messages are spreading more effectively and more, more broadly. And, and I think that the counter narrative that climate change is a hoax uh, probably has traction and it may well have way more traction than I appreciate. Well, I just want to say it goes back to the point around how do we process charged and difficult information and data. And I've interviewed hundreds of people um, having in-depth conversations. And what I find is a very complicated picture where people kind of know, but they kind of don't want to know and choose not to know. And so what that suggests to me is that we do need to be incredibly thoughtful about the ways in which we are communicating with people that ideally sort of soften that defensive limbic response, um, which can include the personal storytelling and the sense that there's some hopefulness and there's some solutions, as well as being able to just be real and honest and acknowledge like this is this is intense. This is this is hard. This you might feel this. You might feel overwhelmed. You might feel that that can actually allow people to process and learn more effectively about what's happening. And what? we often think of the information deficit model as you're an idiot, I'm right, I'm going to give you the facts. Mm -hmm. And we know that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Persuasion doesn't work. People try often. If but, I just persuade you, just if you just knew this fact and swallowed it, you'd think you'd see it like I do, and then we'd, things would be okay. But cognitive science shows us what does work. And it, all, everything Renee said is completely true. You have to do this in the right way that acknowledges people's feelings and fear and all of that. But the main thing to know is what changes the brain is the repetition of simple messages that mostly have a moral context and are emotional. It is the repetition that changes it. We hate make America great again, but I'm sorry to tell you the science is clear. That works. Now, in, in the community of scientists and activists, understandably, complexity is what we value to try to get to the truth. But communicating in a complex way does not work. Only simplicity works and only repetition works. And a lot of us don't like to simplify things and we hate repeating ourselves, but that's what works. Saddam 9-11, Saddam 9-11, Saddam 9-11. That, that clearly worked. Um, David uh, Fenton, also, why is that? Let's spin that out a little bit in terms of the way people think that the repetition and how that's rewarded or not rewarded in people's careers. Well, People that go to business school learn cognitive science and they have to learn how to sell things and market things to advance their careers, to sell products and services. So that's their orientation. And people in the sciences and the law and the humanities, that's not what they study. So it's kind of a mismatch. So you know, a lot of us think that kind of because we know something, we assume other people know it too. And the other side does not make that mistake. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the coming climate deadline. Up ahead, doomsday scenarios. Are we headed towards human extinction? I don't know about extinction, but I do know that at the rate we're going, we'll have to abandon all the coastal cities of the world at some point. And imagine the chaos. How do we survive that? That's up next when Climate One continues. everyone, I'm Sarah Catherine, and I work on strategy and content for Climate One. We've been interviewing top experts on all things climate since our podcast got started over a decade ago. But now you're the ones we want to interview. Climate One would love your honest feedback on a survey we're doing to better understand our audiences. We're offering everyone who participates the chance to win one of eight $250 gift cards by going to climateone.org forward slash survey. We really look forward to hearing your thoughts there. Thanks again for taking our brief survey. Again, that's at climateone.org forward slash survey.
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the 2030 climate deadline. My guests are psychologist and author Renee Lertzman, Chris Field, a climate scientist at Stanford and senior leader on the IPCC, and David Fenton, a climate communications expert. Earlier in the program, Renee Lertzman brought up the ways that dopamine and serotonin factor into our responses to the climate crisis. In the context of this conversation, what I'm most interested in is what triggers our dopamine response and what supports our serotonin. And we can think of that as a a metaphor for uh, engagement with the issue. How do we stay connected and engaged with an issue that is scary and overwhelming and so forth? So the research that I found game-changing has been by Robert Lustig here at UCSF, where he wrote a great book, um, Hacking the American Mind, where he talks about what has been established to promote dopamine and serotonin. And um, for him, he came up with what he calls the four C's. And I use these four C's in my climate communications and engagement work. When we feel connected, when we feel we are contributing to something, when we feel that we have tools to cope, with stressors. And his fourth C is cooking, um, which is very interesting because apparently cooking makes us, it it promotes a lot of serotonin. I tend to kind of interchange cooking with creativity. So when we're creatively involved in the stuff of our lives, gardening, cooking, you know, what have you. um, And when I, what I relate that to with the climate crisis is when people are asking me, how do we How do we design a way to engage people, make people care and motivate people? I always flip it in the context of what promotes serotonin. In other words, um, we're in this for the long haul. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. There's lots of things that can promote kind of short action, like here's a pledge and here's a challenge and here's a target. So that's dopamine, which is like a quick sugar high. It's a quick kind of like immediate... Uh, more of a limbic response, whereas the serotonin you might think of as what is sustaining, and that's through relationship, and it's through our experience of ourselves as having agency, feeling that we have some power and that we're in control. So when I'm giving advice, I would say, well, as long as you allow people or enable people to feel that we are partners, that you are just as much a part of this story as I am, and that we are in this together, that in itself really allows us to face what I think is on some level unthinkable. Chris Field, uh, the word extinction gets thrown a lot uh, around a lot these days. And um, climate scientists are often invoked. Scientists say we got to go faster. And yet you talk to individual scientists and their hair is not on fire. Some of them are more moderate and temperate than the people who are quoting, quoting the scientists. So tell us, you know, about is the actual extinction of the human race, is that in the models, or is it, because we often hear this is existential, human extinction, right? Is that really a possibility in the math you look at? There's no question that we have seen major extinctions through the history of the earth. Many people feel that we may be starting into a sixth major extension. In the most massive extinctions to date, we've seen a loss of as many as 90% of the species from the geological record. We've seen only a few extinctions that we can trace with any level of confidence to climate change so far, but we've only seen a small amount of the climate change we might see. And again, I want to contrast a world of ambitious mitigation where we would see more extinctions, almost certainly not the extinction of humanity, in a world of continued high emissions. In that world of continued high emissions, what, what really bothers me, well, it bothers me that in 2100, we might be looking at four and a half to five C warming over pre-industrial. But what really bothers me about that is that we're still warming at half a C per decade. Can you tell people what that is in Fahrenheit? About one Fahrenheit per decade, roughly. And to but five C is how much Fahrenheit? Nine. So... It's, it's really rapid warming into the indefinite future that we worry about. And, and we often don't think enough about the way that every time we build a new coal-fired power plant, every time somebody uh, builds a new kerosene-powered jetliner, we're committed to decades of using that infrastructure. And what I'm worried about is that if we're still building new power plants and new kerosene-powered jetliners in 2080, we're going to cruise through the the end-of-the-century mark with that continued warming. Now, what happens 
if we're warming at, uh, to defer to David's recommendation that we use English units when we're, when we're more than 10 Fahrenheit above pre-industrial and when we're increasing at uh, a degree per decade, is there a risk that, that humankind would become extinct as a result of this? So we have no way of, of even making crude estimates. I can tell you that if you look at the evidence from economists, they say some places do better, some places do worse with warming. And, and even if you project that out to the kind of massive amounts of warming we're talking about. And so personally, I think that we're on a trajectory to solve climate change way before the extinction of the human race is a major risk. But the possibility of interacting impacts, unexpected complications, breakdown of the social fabric, and loss of key ecosystem services point to a much more challenging future unless we stay in this world of ambitious mitigation. And if I may, I don't know about extinction, but I do know that at the rate we're going, we'll have to abandon all the coastal cities of the world at some point. And imagine the chaos. How do we survive that? People in southern Asia, India, and Pakistan will literally die walking out on the street. We won't be able to till the fields. That is what we're headed for. I believe it's true that the amount of uh, carbon dioxide in, uh, in the atmosphere now, previous in Earth's geologic history, that same amount, the seas were about 70 feet higher than they are today. So we're not only going to have to reduce emissions, we're going to have to take some of this stuff out of the air. And the good news is that we can, and we can do it. We can, it's certainly affordable. It's a lot more affordable than, than all that destruction. But we have to rally the public to demand this. That's the only solution I see. Uh, Renee Lurzman, this gets can, to... Can make sure, Chris, yeah, I, so I made a the mistake. The last time right. the CO2 concentration was as high as it is now, we think the sea level was about six meters higher. Six meters. Oh, that's uh, a lot. Uh, six that's 20 feet. feet is about right. 20 feet, yeah, yeah. not 70 feet. That's enough, right? Okay, thank you. <laughs> that'll, that'll still flood you know, most major cities, which, Renee Lurzman, this gets to the point of, of debate is, you know, how candid, how dark is it? How screwed are we? And should we really talk about that? Or some people say, no, don't say that because there's a paralysis or, or a despair, mm -hmm. but you think that's a myth. Why? That people oh, will God. lapse into despair if they're told the dark truth. Well... I think that uh, humans, in some way or another, we actually respond and crave truth, even if it's hard truth. But the question is how, what the context is that allows us, those conditions you talked about in your opening, what are the optimal conditions that allow us to really be with what's real and what's true? Um, we see this in young people. Young people light up and crave learning and and knowledge and truth. And so I think it's incredibly dangerous to think that we need to ever minimize, to soften, to sugarcoat, to um, not go there, to you know keep it all light and solutions oriented and not talk about the reality of loss and turbulence and despair and disruption. It's like, you know, give it to me. It's, it's a sense of like, give it to me straight. Like people have a radar for being being messed around. So you think that, that people can handle the truth, they won't get stuck at it, they actually crave it, they want it, and... And it's the conditions in which that happens. That makes all the difference. If, if you're in a classroom where you're able to actually talk about what, what comes up for you as we're learning these things, what are your responses? What does this make you think about? What are you excited about? What are you scared about? If you're in a family, if you're in a group of friends, if you're a program like this, you know, it's the conditions that allow us to confront and be with what is scary and hard. And that's where relationship comes in. When we feel that we're in relationship and connection, we can handle so much more than if we feel like we're alone and, um, and we're sort of on our own with it. David Fenton, a lot of communication people say, we gotta be upbeat or optimistic. Don't talk about sacrifice because Americans don't do that anymore. Maybe they did during World yeah, War yeah, II. The, you gotta sugarcoat this whole thing. Well, that's just you know, morally wrong. 
uh, you know, people deserve the truth. It's a moral imperative. And people can handle the truth. And we cannot transform every building, every airplane, every car, and every power plant like we have to unless the public is engaged in understanding that this is an emergency and this is like war. And by the way, you know, war is actually has very interesting psychological effects on populations. More babies are born. People have lots of fun. This is going to be like a war, uh, only it's a good war to save ourselves, and we're going to come out much better for it. Energy is going to be cheaper. That is for sure. Uh, we're going to have far less pollution. There'll be much more employment. There'll be much more wealth, like there always is in major infrastructure transformations in history. So we have to tell that story, but we also have to say, and you know what? We need to hurry up. Mm -hmm. uh, Renee Lurtzman, I want to ask you, there's been lessons learned from public health and how to shift behavior and flip convention on its head. So tell us what public health can teach us about this. Well, so there's a, a field or a school of practice in public health called motivational interviewing, and it's completely influenced my way of thinking about climate and environmental engagement and communication. So motivational interviewing, or MI for short, is a practice that clinicians have developed that's really the most evidence-based approach to really shifting hard behavior change that's out there. And if you really look at what it's about, it's quite radical. Uh, motivational interviewing is really about supporting people as a guide. So it flips the whole idea that I'm going to tell you what you should do because it's the right thing to do, because if you don't, you're going to die, or you're going to get really sick, or all these bad things are going to happen to you. It's about taking the knowledge that we may have, those of us who actually know quite a bit about the issues, and sitting on it long enough to really allow others to, to reflect on what their relationship is with the issue. So MI, in its essence, is being what it means to be a guide, as opposed to being a cheerleader or an educator or a writer, R-I-G-H-T. It's really about inviting people to say, well, what is it that, you know, what matters to you and what do you feel that you can actually meaningfully do? So it's a way of engaging people in, an, in, a, in a conversation with the focus being on change. So much of communication these days is over social media. Do you think that kind of empathy can happen on social media? Where, where villainization and attacking is rewarded. You get a big audience. Climate One would have a bigger audience if I villainized and attacked people. I think that... Without a doubt, it can be done very, very effectively on social media and across all kinds of platforms, but it takes a, a, a level of skill. And the skill is that you need to be able to know how to um, raise provocative questions and prompts that allow people to reflect and respond in ideally a, a honest and human way. So my Twitter life, there's a lot of climate folks on there. And um, I noticed that when people share, uh, they tweet something that's actually really human, like uh, there's a number mm. of women in particular who are very brave and very courageous in tweeting about their lived experience of wrestling with these issues. What I notice is that there's huge response. It's just, it's, it blows up. So I think that people are actually really hungry for that kind of communication and interaction on Twitter, but it's such a fine line where it can just easily degenerate and devolve very quickly into just, like you said, just a real polarizing kind of base. We're talking about the climate deadline 2030 at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Our guests are Chris Field, director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University, Renee Lertzman, a climate engagement strategist, speaker, and psychologist, and David Fenton, founder of Fenton Communications. We're going to go to our lightning round and invite you to respond to association. I'm going to mention a phrase, and you can answer with uh, just one word or one uh, phrase, whatever comes to the top of your mind, unfiltered, um, and uh, so from your reptilian brain or whatever that part of your brain is that is most honest. Um, Chris Field, what comes to mind when I say carbon capture and sequestration? Yes. Yes to all of the options <laughs> for solving the climate crisis. <laughs> David Fenton, Facebook. Oh, bad. <laughs> <laughs> True or false? Chris Field, every bit of warming matters. True, no doubt. David Fenton, true or false, every act to reduce carbon pollution matters. Yes, because it gives people the sense that together they can make a difference. True or false, Renee Lertzman, every act really doesn't matter. We just want to believe that. 
Oh, false. <laughs> David Fenton, true or false, you have considered getting arrested at a climate protest. Yes. Renee Lertzman, one day you probably will engage in civil disobedience as part of a climate protest. Uh, yes. Chris Field, um, Stanford's divestment from coal companies was an empty gesture because coal is a crappy investment and many coal companies have gone bankrupt. Yes. <laughs> uh, also for Chris Field. It was an okay gesture, but it was empty eventually. Also for Chris Field, true or false, Stanford should divest from all fossil fuels. I disagree with that. I'd be happy to go on at length. True or false, Renee Lertzman, the white men on this panel with you are good listeners. True. <laughs> Let's give them a round of applause for getting through the, the climate one. You're listening to a conversation about facing the climate deadline. This is Climate One. Coming up, finding the courage to take action. You might feel really stuck or you might feel really frustrated. You might not see yourself as an activist. I didn't see myself as an activist, but guess what? This is what's happening and this is why I'm acting. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for this podcast is from the new book, Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change, an illustrated guide on how to talk to climate deniers. Dr. John Cook, founder of the website Skeptical Science, takes us on an educational tour through the world of climate disinformation. He provides insightful and often humorous tips for debunking popular myths. Our listeners ask me all the time how to talk to climate change deniers. Now I can suggest a copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change. It's a funny and informative read for people of all ages and great preparation for those holiday dinners with your own cranky uncle. Changing people's minds is a difficult task, but identifying and preventing the spread of misinformation with proven data and scientific evidence can be just as important. Pick up your copy of Cranky Uncle vs. Climate Change today everywhere books are sold. For more information, visit crankyuncle.com. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate One records many of our conversations with a live audience at our modern and green new home on the waterfront in San Francisco. When you're in town, I invite you to come check us out. Our programs are open to the public and listed on climateone.org. We're talking about the 2030 climate deadline with communications expert David Fenton, psychologist Renee Lertzman, and Stanford climate scientist Chris Field. When I think of going over the climate cliff, I often picture old cartoons. Remember Wile E. Coyote chasing the roadrunner? Every episode he raced out over the cliff without realizing it, then suddenly looked down and kaboom. Will humanity see the climate cliff before it's too late? Chris Field has a theory. When I think about tipping points, there are really three that concern me the most. And, and I think about a tipping point as uh, genuinely a, a point of no return. One concern sea level rise. We know that based on the underlying geology of Antarctica, we know based on the elevation profile of Greenland, that there's some point at which we're committed to large amounts of sea level rise, even if we use carbon capture and storage to bring the CO2 down, even if we could cool the climate back, that we're committed to in excess of five meters of sea level rise, which is the level that's really existential for coastal communities, for many small island nations. We have a pretty high level of confidence that we haven't passed that tipping point yet, but we also have a pretty high level of confidence that it's within the next, um, I think we have an international audience, so one to two C of future warming or, or uh, three to four Fahrenheit of future warming. So that commitment to more than five meters of sea level rise, more than 15, 16 feet of sea level rise, really existential for a lot of the world's population. Second really critical tipping point concerns responses in which the Earth system starts releasing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere independent of what we as people do. One mechanism by which that happens is when the Arctic warms so much that melting permafrost is a big source of greenhouse gases. Another is when areas like the Amazon convert from being essentially fire-proof to fire-prone. 
under those conditions, even if we bring greenhouse gases down to warming, we might see a continued progression of a world of high emissions because the emissions are coming from nature. That's a tipping point that we're pretty sure we haven't passed yet and is probably within the next two to three C, four to six Fahrenheit of warming. And then the third kind of tipping point that worries me, and this is the one that worries me almost the most, is it's really clear from the analysis of global economies that there are many parts of the world that are more impacted by warming than others. It's mostly the poor countries. It's mostly countries that are already in hot climates that are really the most impacted and where future warming just tremendously erodes their potential for future economic growth. Uh, what concerns me is if climate change really does drive a separation between the economic winners and the economic losers, we lose whatever chance we have for a society of sufficient social cohesion to tackle this problem in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. So at least for me, those are the kinds of issues that really represent points of no return. Uh, let me just say one more thing about the sea level rise, and I, I should have said it earlier. We don't have a very clear picture of how rapidly this ice sheet collapse might occur. Most of the estimates are that if we are committed to more than five meters of sea level rise, it would probably occur over 500 years or more. Maybe that's room for coastal communities to rethink their future. But if you think about the prominence of uh, cities like Venice that have been there for a thousand years, for uh, key iconic coastal sites around the world, 500 years really isn't a very long time. Yeah, it doesn't really matter how long it's going to take. It's immoral to do that. It's just immoral to knowingly do that, and that's what's happening now. There are forces in our world that are knowingly doing that to the people and the earth, and we have to stop them. But, but it is important to remember that if we were having this conversation in 1520 rather than 2020, it would be hard for us to imagine the world of 500 years in the future. Well, sure. I agree with your point sure, about sure, the Sure, 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 but, you, you, you know, you, and technologies may well emerge that we don't know about, but we can't bank the future of civilization on that. I, That's immoral, too. I, we know how to solve this, and again, solving it is really going to be a good thing for, in so many ways, as you pointed I out. I totally agree with that. So, you know, we're facing, in my view, the... the, the sort of the ultimate moral story of human history, which is, are we really going to let a very few companies do this to the future of humanity when we don't have to? If you had to do this to have prosperity and growth, sure, okay, that would be a terrible thing. But we know we don't have to do this. We're going to go to audience questions. Welcome. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Jackie Garcia. I'm a member of 350 Contra Costa. This message is for Renee. I wonder if you think it's useful to educate people about the fact that our lifestyles are emitting the most carbon mm. and greenhouse gas emissions that will later raise the temperatures across the globe in places and disadvantaged people who are in frontline communities are not actually polluting as much as we are. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's vital that we bring that level of empathy. I mean, I guess my, my message is empathy generally is one of the most powerful, effective, strategic orientations we can have in how we're communicating. Empathy is not the same as letting anyone off the hook. Empathy actually allows us, again, it softens our defensive mechanisms, right? It softens our, our tendency to resist. And when we feel that there's empathy when I feel understood, I'm able to listen and engage and learn exponentially higher. Do you feel guilty about your lifestyle? Absolutely, of course. I sure do. Yeah. Next question, welcome to Climate One. Thank you, my name is Jeff Mann. Uh, Chris Field, why do you think that Stanford should not divest from all fossil fuels? You sort of, you sort of hinted so at it before. I, I, I think that, that um, part of our problem is um, an overemphasis on the 
truly reprehensible actions of a, of a few companies in creating misinformation. But I think it also, when I look at how we're going to solve the climate problem, I actually find a, a very, uh, I find it very hard to envision a set of solutions that doesn't involve the competences that the more forward-looking oil and gas companies bring to the table. Things like being able to manage international projects across many countries at billions of dollars of scale, being able to drill precise holes underground and bust up rocks and shoot things into them. And I think there are lots of, there are lots of uh, investments that should be spurned for ethical grounds, and many fossil fuel companies should be. But I also think that we're not going to solve this problem without bringing fossil fuel competences into the mix. And so I, I think that to be impactful, divestment efforts should be targeted toward particular companies, and they shouldn't be blanketed. I also think it's important to recognize that you know, demand for fossil fuels comes from all of us, everybody who turns on a light switch or, um, or has a, takes a jet flight or, or drives a gasoline-powered car. And it's deceptively easy to say, oh, if it just wasn't for those companies, we wouldn't have this problem, when we really need to recognize that emissions are coming from billions of decisions that are made around the world every day. Sure, and that's true. Uh, and I've often thought we should thank the fossil fuel companies. Great job. Look at all this prosperity. And now we know it's time to change. You know, damn them with praise. But at the same time, I, I'm hesitant to blame individuals. You know, individuals are not responsible for the state of our infrastructure. You know, that, those are forces beyond what most individuals can affect, except through political action. So I think, of course, like everything else, it's a balanced picture, we all do contribute, but ultimately, this is a system problem. It's not an individual problem. Next question. Welcome. Hi, my name is Annie Leonard. I'm with Greenpeace. Um, I have a question about this 30%. On one level, having 30% of the people alarmed about climate is embarrassingly small, given how clear the science is. But on another level, that's a lot of people. That's more than Martin Luther King had when he mm. had his I Have a Dream speech. That's more than the suffragettes had and the abolitionists have. 30% of the public, we should be able to drive big change. So what advice would you give to an activist about the relative importance of growing that 30% to be 60% alarmed or mobilizing that 30% to go from being alone and distraught to together and active? Excellent question. Thank you. So a few things. One is I think we need to be unleashing conversations. So wherever possible, we need to be promoting, supporting, and facilitating people who are in any way convening, whether it's you know teachers or in churches or whatever, to have open, honest, real conversations where there's psychological safety so we can get real and then move quickly into strategizing, activating, and so forth. Until we do that, people are in that paralysis, ambivalent, anxious state. So I can't say enough about what happens when people get together, especially in small groups, and can actually talk to each other. And we see that as a profound driver of activism and change. <clears throat> and adding on to that, I would say my advice to activists is to, to skill up around how we manage our own sense of urgency and our own sense of fear and, and panic, and to become... Um, able to channel that in ways that are effective, but to invest more in really trying to understand and practice the compassion and the empathy for why people are concerned and yet doing nothing. Because that's really the silent majority. It's this ambivalent majority of people who feel completely stuck in a double bind. And men, millions of people feel stuck. And I think we have the opportunity to actually help us kind of unstick by promoting the conversations and also open, openly acknowledging like, yeah, this, you might feel really stuck or you might feel really frustrated. You might not see yourself as an activist. I didn't see myself as an activist, but guess what? This is what's happening and this is why I'm acting. Um, anything that allows us to really connect um, at that human level. Last question. Welcome. Hi, Greg. It's Mark Hertzgard. 
I'm the environment correspondent with The Nation and the executive director of Covering Climate Now. We know that we have to cover the story of the 2020 election, and some people would say that this election will decide the climate mm -hmm. future, certainly if the current administration were to stay in power. So I'd like to ask all three of your guests, what is the story that the press should be trying to tell over the next 11 months, and how should we tell it? David Fenton, start. Well, I think that the print press has largely done a very good job of this. Uh, the problem's television, Mark, as you know, and I know you're working on that. Um, you know, until recently, the, the ABC, NBC, uh, CBS morning and evening news programs uh, like barely mention the word climate change and don't cover the story. And while they have a smaller audience, and they used to, their combined audiences, I think about 35 million people, and um, it's missing on television. Uh, it's on cable, but that's a very small audience, and half the cable audience is watching Fox, which is purposely disinforming people. So I think really the challenge is to get it on television, which is the most powerful medium that we have, and of course those videos get played on the internet, et cetera. But by and large, I think the print press is doing a superb job. Renee Lertzman. So I would say an emotionally intelligent approach, um, reporting journalism that brings in the human dimension as much as possible, that shares nuance through personal story, through allowing people to share their complicated stories. The one thing I would say is that's incredibly powerful is the unexpected. So there's a lot of sort of numbness around the climate narrative and the climate news and the solutions and all of that. Anything that breaks through the kind of the numbness that's unexpected, surprising, shocking. And to me, that story is people who have gone from, uh, it came up earlier in our conversation, people who, conservative Republicans who are now really, you know, acting on this, pastors, farmers in Iowa, um, you know, young, you know, kids in the hood who are now activated, like, really bust open the story so that the faces and the stories are so diverse and so surprising and so energizing that people really feel it at that visceral level. You've been listening to a Climate One conversation about urgency and action. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests today were Renee Lertzman, a psychologist with a new TED Talk titled How to Turn Climate Anxiety into Action. Chris Field, director of the Woods Institute for the Environment at Stanford University, and David Fenton, founder of Fenton Communications. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Please help us better understand you, our listeners, by taking a brief survey at climateone.org forward slash survey. Everyone who participates will get a shot at one of eight $250 gift cards to thank you for your time. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Our audio team is Arnav Gupta, Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>